because of legal challenges. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Welcome to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, a weekly radio show celebrating the cultural heritage of the American worker. We're a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. I'm Elise Bryant. Elise, welcome back. You have been traveling. Yes, I have, and I had a great time. Malta. We're going to have to hear more about Malta, but that's for uh-huh. another... And the trade unionists in Malta, who and we met tra- with. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully you brought us back some labor songs from Malta. Mm, no, but I bought some labor uh, other things. <laughs> <laughs> other things. All right, folks, stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right. We have a fabulous show for you this week. Hey, have you seen American Fiction yet? I have not seen it. It's on my list of must-see before the week is over. I, I tell you what, I've seen it. I'll go back and I'll see it again. It is that good. We oh. Have a, oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Seriously. <laughs> book us book us into the AFI right now. Uh, anyway, we have a terrific interview with Cord Jefferson, the writer-director. Uh, he's going to take us behind the scenes, uh, talk about the challenges of adapting this book and creating Black-centered narratives. And it's just a really great interview. It's from the uh, WGA podcast. Something that I really thought a lot about when it came to writing American fiction was this: was the idea that you have this book that you love, but you need to change it pretty drastically in order to make it a movie, you know, and you can't sort of hew so closely to the text. You have to make some decisions that are going to change things. And then in our second segment, you want to tell them about the second segment? Yes. We're going to hear from one of our local heroes and one of the founding fathers of the Labor Heritage Foundation, organizer, musician Joe Uline. He's going to tell us the story behind the song Hands. And he turns and points to a big gun rack that was right by the front door he said, if you're here to talk about the union, that's what you're going to meet. And he points to his guns. Now, leaning up against the gun rack was a guitar. And so I shifted the conversation immediately to the guitar. That's all coming up on today's Labor Heritage Power Hour. But first, at least I was thinking about a Cesar Chavez quote, you are never strong enough that you don't need help. And I was kind of thinking that that applies uh, to the fundraising that we're doing now for WPFW because, you know, PFW is pretty strong. Yes, and it's strong because of all the people who are willing to volunteer their time and efforts and the members out there who are willing to support this wonderful, powerful Jazz with Justice station, one of a kind in our area for sure. And Sister Katia came up with a terrific motto for this pledge drive that we're in right now. Revolutionary radio for revolutionary times. I like it. It sounds like we could do a song about that. I mean, you know, if you were so inclined. (laughs) I'll share it with Steve Jones and Peter Jones. They'll probably come up with something quick. There you go. There you go. Let's let's bring in the people who actually know what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, folks. 1-800-222-9739. Or you can go on WPFWFM.org and click on Donate. Now, 100-222-9739. WPFWFM.org or on Cash App, dollar sign W. P.F.W. Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. Yeah, that's it. All right. What do you say? Should we go to the show? Let's do it. Yeah. Hey, this is Bob Odie from Million Dollar Organizer. We're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network where working people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. Any news? Editors. They want a black book. They have one. I'm black, and it's my book. Look at what they expect us to write. Would you read an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, where you be going in a hurry like that? If and you gots to know, I was going to the pharmacy. Oh, when you're living on faith, something's got to 
they want stereotypes, I'll give them one. What is this? Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack, that's black, right? Nobody's gonna publish this. Just wanna rub their nose, isn't it? We love it. What? It is very, uh... Black? Yes, that's it. I'm happy you said it and not me. (laughs) Welcome to Third and Fairfax. The official podcast of the Writers Guild of America West. Next up, host Hilliard Guest speaks with screenwriter and director Cord Jefferson about his acclaimed new film, American Fiction. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Hilliard Guest. I am the co-chair of the Committee of Black Writers, as well as the Writers, Writers Education Committee. So let's welcome to the show, everybody, my man, Cord Jefferson out here killing the game big time. All my friends are super jealous of you, Cord, just killing the game. Coming in five, six, eight years. Next thing you know, you Oscar nominated and stuff. You know, you know, every once in a while, God gives somebody that little fairy dust. <laughs> so people are coming to take your legs, Cord. They're taking your legs. I hope not. I hope not. There's enough, there's enough to spread around. I feel like there's enough fairy dust out there. Exactly. <laughs> Hey, man, welcome to the show, everybody. Like I said, Court Jefferson, Emmy winner, WJ Award, uh, NAACP, um, Audience Award at TIFF. We could keep going. Um, so many good things going on for y'all. Um, his new movie, American Fiction. We're just going to jump right on in. Um, Court, so yes, let's, let's just go back a little bit. Just tell everybody a little bit about you, how you got into the game, and like how you started writing. How did all that come about? So I was a journalist for about eight or nine years immediately after college. Uh, I worked at a variety of different places. I worked in New York and L.A. For a time, I was in D.C. doing some political reporting. So I was bouncing around always, uh, always as a journalist. But I, I always had, you know, ambitions of of becoming, you know, just a, a writer, a more general kind of writer. I wanted to write books. I was interested in writing screenplays, but um, particularly Hollywood felt like uh, it just felt like, you know, if it, I didn't have any family in it. I didn't I didn't know anybody. I didn't really have any friends in in, in the industry. And so I think that if, if you don't have access to it in that way, it can feel kind of impenetrable. And so I was always like, well, I would I would love to write a screenplay one day, but I have no idea how I would even begin to do that. And then fortunately, um, uh, a guy named Mike O'Malley, who was the showrunner on a show called Survivor's Remorse, he read some of my journalism and he reached out to me one day and said, you know, uh, maybe you'll hate it and maybe I won't like you and then we, we won't get along, but I would love for you to try to write on the show and become a staff writer on the show. So he reached out to me based on some of my journalism he'd read and asked me to come be a, be a staff writer for the first season of Survivor's Remorse. And so I did that. I really loved the collaborative nature of it up until then, you know, the writing that I'd been doing. It's a very solitary exercise. It's just, you know, you and your editor mostly. Exactly. It's just you and your editor and mostly and mostly just you and your computer, you know. And so uh, being in that room with a bunch of other writers that I really liked and admired and 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 working with actors and directors and, and production designers and costume designers, all these people that, that make movies and TV shows work. Uh, that was just such a thrill to me. And it was like, I don't have to sit alone in my bedroom for hours on end. Like I can actually have conversations with people during the day. I fell in love with it and just uh, just started trying to, you know, I, did, I didn't work for another eight months after that. And I almost gave up and went just back to being a full-time journalist. But uh, after about eight or nine months of, of hitting the pavement and sort of looking and, and taking a lot of general meetings and meeting a lot of, a lot of other people, I, I got my second show, um, on uh, the nightly show with Larry Wilmore, and so Larry Wilmore hired me. We to love Larry. Larry's yeah, great. he's great. Larry's <laughs> amazing, and he and he hired me to come be a writer on on his Comedy Central show, and then it was working pretty consistently a- after that. And so let me uh, let me ask you let me ask you a question. I might be interrupting you a little bit. No, Just, no, please, please, bro. You don't please, mind, yeah. no, man. I'm I'm a verbose me, person, so please tell me to shut up whenever. Two things that I'm curious for for you, because um, I one of the things that I get a sense of for you is. Not only can you write the most dramatic moments, you also can write the most funny, hilarious, satirist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you really mm-hmm. felt that part. When you describe yourself as a writer, do you how do you how do you describe yourself? Just curious. I just say I'm a writer, man. I think that ignorance sometimes can help you in in sort of in careers. And I think that when I came into this industry, I was ignorant of the fact that that 
people, you know, people, some people consider themselves comedy writers and some people consider themselves drama writers. I didn't, I didn't know that that was just like a, a choice that people made. I was like, I'm a TV writer. So I, I just write TV, right? Like that's what life is. Life is neither comedy nor tragedy. It's, it's frequently both of those things. So I can do both those things because I live, I live a life that's both funny and sad. And so I never sort of like limited myself to one of the, to one or the other. And so I think that that kind of helped me early in my career because I, it allowed me to go from, you know, from the nightly show with Larry Wilmore, sort of like this late night comedy show to master of none, which is kind of this dramedy half hour to Watchmen, which is sort of like genre dramatic genre show. Right. And to succession, which is like a very funny hour long show. Like it's just, there was just sort of a, a, a I, I didn't realize that that was that that was strange to some people. I just felt like a writer is a writer, a writer is a writer. So I just call myself a writer. When you're when you're in the writer's room on a show, do you do you tend to pull back and give it a week or two to see how the rhythm goes to figure out where your superpower or whatever you want to call it is going to exist? Or do you come on a show and when you meet the showrunner already get a sense of and I know you're already now about to start doing your own shows, but as you were coming up. Were you like figuring out your lane and like, oh, I'm strong yeah. in that? Like, what was your thing? Yeah, I think that's I think that's an incredibly important thing to understand is that if you're working for a good showrunner, a good showrunner understands that everybody brings something special to the room, and that it's a, you know the same way that a baseball manager doesn't want to hire twenty pitchers. They, you know, a showrunner, a good showrunner isn't going to want to hire twenty people who do the exact same thing. Well, you know, and so for instance, in the Good Place writers' room. That room was filled with some of the funniest people working in this industry, and it was filled with people who were stand-up comedians and, you know, improv graduates and people who had written for Saturday Night Live, like people whose entire thing was like, I want to be a comedy writer and I really love comedy. And like it's so there was people in there who were just punchline factories where some of the funniest, quickest, sharpest. Fun, like, ability, yeah, <laughs> their ability to come up with jokes on the fly was just wild to me. I can't do that. That's never been my ability. But I can write. I can write jokes if you give me a few days to go off with a script and write it. I can do that. But just sort of like, as far as firing them off in a room, I can't do that. Right. Or at least I couldn't then. Maybe I can now. I don't know. But I realized that what the good place also needed was, you know, it's a show about philosophy. It's a show about. It's a show about sort of the the ethics of 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 the afterlife. It's a show. It's a show with a lot of character development. It's a show with a lot of logic puzzles. And I was like. I'm very good with story. I'm very good with character. I think that these are things that I that I am good at. And so I just would realize that like, you know, when it comes to sort of like the pitch room where it's just we're punching up the punch up room, we're just pitching out jokes. That's not going to be my time to shine. I can I can pitch something every now and again here and there. But that's not really where my ability lies. My ability really lies. So when it so it was like when when we're talking about structure, when we're talking about character, when we're talking about sort of like the logic problems when we're talking about the the ethical philosophy and what what we really want to say with the show and what the themes of the show should be that was when i was like okay here's where i'm more additive to this and where i can show my worth and value so i think that it's important when you go into a writer's room i think to just be honest with yourself be honest with yourself about what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to develop your skill set what your whatever your weaknesses are and get better at your weaknesses but it just means being honest and saying like I may not be able to chip in the way that the, these writers are chipping in here, but I'm really good at this and I can do this really well. So I've always been focused on that when I'm in writer's rooms. Yeah, and it's, and it's funny because you'll be in a room and it's really easy, even no matter how good you are to get imposter syndrome. Especially totally. Oh, when man. You're surrounded by these beasts, that, you know, that are just... Yeah, and especially when, especially when you're black, you know? I yeah. think that especially when, especially when you are... A black room, you know, we know that a lot of writers' rooms are, are very, very, very white still. You know, there is there is change, but there is still not a lot of diversity in some writers' rooms. And I think that it's it's very easy to feel like an imposter and feel like that imposter syndrome. And I think that it's important to realize that you are there for a reason. You right. were hired for a reason. And to, you know, make your voice heard. You know, when I first started out, I was very afraid to talk up in a writer's room. You know, I was nervous because I was, especially that first writer's room, because I was in there working with writers who've been doing stuff for years, you know? You went there cold too. Nobody told you how to do it. So. Exactly. And so it was like, I was very afraid to talk, but I realized like at a certain point, it's like, you got to remind yourself you're here for a reason. You were hired for a reason. They want to hear your ideas. They want, they value your brain. And so 
that to me was always helpful in helping getting over the the imposter syndrome was like they hired me because they they I, they want me here and so i need to acknowledge that i'm here for a reason and make my voice heard right right i can't have you on here without talking about watchmen yes please you know you wrote my favorite episode i know we talked about this one thank before. you yeah <laughs> you know i'm sure everybody tells you about it <laughs> it's 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 personal to me because like eight years ago i wrote about i wrote a black wall street script that gets me in any oh, room wow. And yeah. it takes place over just the 24 hours, you know, wow. happening after, you know, yeah. the aftermath of it all. And um, and and when I saw the way you guys did it, I was like, they're on the right track of where I want <laughs> to go. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Minus the, the sci-fi and all the other stuff. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but the in your faceness of about it, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? The 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 it felt like a horror movie when it came yeah. out. Yeah. And that is the feeling that I know that team and that 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 staff, you know, put together there that it's like all of a sudden it goes from this, you know, this movie where there's all these beautiful, successful, you know, black folks living better than some of the white folks to holy shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mom has dropped. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally. Yeah. Literally. Anybody can go yeah. and, yeah. and nobody's safe. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so anyway, I just had to say that just really quick. But um, what what was it like working on in in that in that room for you? Uh, that that was a a real real privilege, and I feel like I learned so much. You know, the 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 two guys who have really really supported me uh, uh, in the industry. Uh, you know, besides, I've had like really really great bosses. Sure. Michael Malley, who hired me for Survivors Remorse. Larry Wilmore, who hired me for for the nightly show, yeah. uh, and then Mike Schur and Damon Lindelof have also been really supportive. And Damon, to me, to this day, is a really really good friend and a mentor of mine. And so I was a huge fan of the Leftovers. Mm -hmm. I, I I loved the Leftovers so much, particularly season two. I was I was I mean, Crazy. When, when Regina King was there, I was it was just like sort of and, and Joven Adepo, like like I just really sort of like fell in love with. Right. with that show in a very real way. I loved season one, but I, I especially loved season two and I was just obsessed with it. And so when I met Damon about three weeks after the series finale had aired for that show and told him that, um, told him that I was a huge fan. And he emailed me about a month later and said, would you be interested in talking about Watchmen? I'd never read Watchmen. And Ooh. so, uh, and Damon said, that's okay. It's, you know, it's kind of what I was saying earlier about like, sometimes ignorance is good. It's uh, he, Damon said, I know Watchmen backward and forward. Mm -hmm. You don't have to know about it. I'm I'm actually interested. It's kind of what I was saying again about about children. I'm interested in the fact that you don't know anything about it because right. you can come into it with your own perspective on it that might be different and 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 great compared to what my perspective is on it. And so, I went into that room knowing that I was there for a reason. And I think that that I just learned so much, not just from Damon, but just we had like a murderer's row of writers in there. You know, yeah, it's Janine sure. Neighbors and. Mm -hmm. Stacia Sekufor and Leela Bai, just people whose people whose work I really, really uh, admired from afar for a while. And so, uh, and then I think that what really helped me in that room was that was the first adaptation I'd ever worked on. Oh, okay. And I think that I, you know, in that the film that I made as an adaptation, right. I learned so much in that room about adapting a book that I that I applied to the script when I was writing, when I was writing American fiction. And that is one of the things that, one of the big lessons that I really took away that Damon kept harping on was he would say, listen, we are building a world. So we sort of like, we can do whatever we want. We sort of, everything that happened in the original Watchmen happened, but we're adding brand new characters. We're putting it in a brand new place. We're sort of like adding this kind of imagined history also and so it was like, we are blue skying and we're going crazy. Mm -hmm. Every writer knows, every writer knows that that's, that looking at a blank page is both exciting and terrifying. Right. It's exciting because you can do anything you want, but it's also terrifying because you can do anything you want. And it's like, <laughs> how do I even start, right? How do I even begin this thing when I can do anything that I want? It can be paralyzing. And so in order to sort of like get over that paralysis and help us sort of like have some some um, structure, Damon would say, we can do anything as long as it feels Watchmen. He would, he would say, and he would say, we all sort of like have a feeling that this book gives us and sort of like we understand the, the emotion that, that is drawn out of you when you read it. 
And so you'd pitch something and sometimes Damon would say, you know, that's a fine pitch, but it doesn't feel Watchmen. It doesn't feel like this. It doesn't feel like the essence. It right. doesn't feel like the spirit of the original. And we want to maintain the spirit of the original in ours, even though ours is going to be wildly different. And right. so that to me was something that I really thought a lot about when I came to writing American fiction was this, was the idea that you have this book that you love, but you need to change it pretty drastically in order to make it a movie, you know, and you can't sort of hew so closely to the text. You have to make some decisions that are going to change things. And so I endeavored to do that while maintaining the spirit of what the novel the novel was and maintaining the essence of what Percival Everett, who wrote Erasure, was trying to do. And in fact, you know, it's at, he told me after the fact, but one of the reasons that I was afraid to approach Percival is because he had he had said no to other people who wanted to come <laughs> along to adapt this book. He had denied he had denied people the rights. And what do you what do you think you did or said that that grabbed him? Was well, it just he, well, what think no? Was? Well, what what he told me after the what he told me after the fact was you he said I we spoke for about a half an hour before he gave me the rights and he, and what he said afterward was uh, he said I thought you understood the spirit of the novel. He said I could tell. Um, he could say he said that I could tell that in our conversation you understood the spirit of what I was trying to do, and I knew that that you would be able to capture the spirit even if you changed a lot of the story. That you knew what I was what I was endeavoring to do, and so when he told me that, that was you know that was probably the greatest compliment that I received on the script was that he felt like I was able to capture what he was attempting to do, even though it was it was different in a lot of ways, you know. And I think and that's, that that's the key. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I'm always telling writers when you're trying to adapt something from something real. You know, like I get asked to do a lot of bio projects, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and one of the things that I'm always looking at is you can't always tell a cradle to the grave story, right? No. So no. how do you just focus on that part of the, like the new Ferrari movie, you know what I mean? Like he just focused on that summer, that four months, 1957. Exactly. I was going through this thing. And it's like, you can do the cradle, but when you do, you're really sticking by the numbers. You exactly. Know? And so, exactly. so I, like, I like what you're talking about because it forces you to focus on what is the, what is the through line that's moving me? You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. And how does that, and how does that keep, how does that thread only work within this part of the story? You know, exactly. and it feels like the entire book. You know? Exactly. It's hard exactly. to do, but you really lean in, you can find it. You know? No, I totally agree. And that's very, I feel that, you know, that is, you know, speaking of Jeffrey Wright, like I love Basquiat. Like I really like that movie, and I think that and I think that that's another one that does that really well. It's like not not Basquiat from Birth to Death. It's it's from Basquiat at this very specific moment in his life when he's sort of like ascending to fame and sort of like what that does to him. And I think that that is that's one of my favorite Jeffrey performances ever. But I I fully. I have I have yet tried to write a biopic. Uh, I think that, that it's, it seems incredibly challenging, but I think that it's always I, I the ones that I consume and enjoy. I think I always enjoy the ones a little bit more that just really focus on a specific moment in time for this person and sort of like what like I think that one of a you know one I think one of the most brilliant biopic scripts is is um, Jobs right is is, oh, is, is that is that Aaron Sorkin script and just this idea that capture you can capture so much of an essence of a person just in three different speeches that they give right like the moments before this big speech and i think that's sort of like the magic trick of that of allowing you to understand who this person is mm -hmm. over the course of their life based just on you know the half hour before they're supposed to give this tremendous speech right. in their career like right. that is just uh, i love that stuff i think it's just such a great sleight of hand and a really nice way to encapsulate these things it's like i spent um, before before the um, before we went on strike, I spent the last year working as number two with Ben Watkins. Oh for, yeah, so I helped him staff like a couple shows and all that. Oh amazing! So it it was it was fascinating to me because <clears throat> one of the things we have in common is we both write underdog stories. Mm -hmm. so I write underdog stories in the murder, death, kill world that deal with redemption. Yeah, you know I mean? so I'm always trying to find you know. So whenever people bring me in, I'm like. Ooh, if we focused on her character, though, yeah, she's the only <laughs> So I think it's one of the things I loved about you know what you did with um, um, with 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 with, uh, with Monk. 
is he is an underdog character. You know what exactly. I mean? Not exactly. as successful as he could be. Clearly, he's a genius and bright and all that other stuff. And that what he ends up doing is super easy to him. Yeah. That's the easy way to go. He's trying to challenge you. Be like, exactly. no, no, look at this. Look at how much better this thing is. You know what I mean? Exactly. And everybody's like, no, we can care less. Give us, give us a shaft. <laughs> give us a regular. Yeah. And I think that that is, and I think that that's what Jeffrey does. It's hard to play a lovable grump. Mm-hmm. It's hard to write somebody who's as antagonistic as, as, Monk is and sort of like still keep the audience on that character's side because there's a world in which the audience just from the beginning says, well, this guy's a jerk. I don't care about him. Who cares? I'm not rooting for him. And then you lose them instantly. And I think that what I tried to sprinkle in there was this, you know, was the understanding that I had this great therapist one time who told me that. uh, Wait, wait, wait. Black people go to therapy? (laughs) <laughs> black people should go to therapy yeah, believe me I'll tell you black people should go to therapy as much as possible <laughs> therapy should be free for black people I promise I agree <laughs> the, 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 uh, uh, and, uh, no no please and so and so the, the, the I had this great therapist who said once that she said anger is a secondary emotion and that for especially for men mm-hmm. anger is always hiding either pain or fear and that sort of like underneath these angry oh, outbursts too. is yeah. either pain or fear and that men especially are afraid to say, like for me, it, it used to be the hardest thing in the world for me to say to somebody, you hurt my feelings when you did this. Mm. Because that to me was not masculine to say. It was not right. masculine to admit, this hurt right. my feelings. It was not masculine to admit, like, I'm afraid. This makes me fearful, right? Mm. And sort of like, and so instead of admitting that you, you're feeling these things, you're just like chest thump and say like, well, I don't, I'm loud and I'm aggressive and I'm not afraid and I certainly, you can't hurt me. And so I think the thing that I really wanted to make sure to include in the film and, and and a thing that I tried to write in and a thing that I think that Jeffrey latched onto and really sort of brought through in his performance was one of the things that really keeps you on Monk's side is you see the pain underneath his anger, right? Like you see he's frustrated. He's arguing with his students. He's arguing with his colleagues. He's arguing with his family. He's arguing with his girlfriend. Like this is a guy who's arrogant and arguing constantly with everybody and picking fights constantly. I know people like him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what keeps you on his side is that like, you see that he's hurt. You just see that he, you see the hurt underneath that anger. And it's like, that is what I really wanted to make sure to incorporate in the writing of the film was that not just a jerk, but a jerk who had a real humanity and depth to him. And the reason he's angry is because he's in so much pain. Let me, so this is, you know, the writer's guild podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about how you adapted, you know, the book into a screenplay for one and how long did it take you to write it? And once you got to that position, how did, did you go to your reps? Did they look at it? How did you guys finally get it out and start, you know, pitching it and whatnot? Yeah. So the first thing that, so I found this book uh, just through happenstance, I was reading a book review for a different book and it mentioned this book in the review and it sounded, it sounded interesting to me. And so I went out and picked it up and, I just intended to read it over no intention of adapting. Just I was like, it, you know, it was Christmas of 2020. And I was like, I'll read it over the holiday break and just, you know, just Ooh. a fun reading exercise. But the minute I started reading it, I was like, oh, OK, this is interesting. This is really speaking to me. And it was like within 50 pages, I was like, maybe I want to write the script and adapt this. I think that I think that there's something to this. It was just it was really resonating with me so deeply in a way that no piece of art had before or, or since. And so I sort of devoured it and quickly reached out to my my manager and said, hey, you read this and see what you think. I think I might have sent him my copy or, or bought him a copy. I don't remember. But he re- he went and read it himself. And he said, I, I think I agree with you. I think that there's something here. And so then we we reached out to his agent and his agent said, Percival wants to have a conversation with Cord for about a, for, for a little bit. And so I think he and I started talking. He and I talked mid-January, and as I said, the conversation went well enough, and he said, I think you understand the spear well enough that he gave me the rights for free for six months. He said, uh-huh. he said, he said, I really, I really think that you you understand it, and then, so you can have the rights for free for six months, which is, you know, you know, rights conversations can take months, if not years sometimes, and so he, him giving me that. And you're a busy writer as it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so him giving me that was just like really incredible. But then I'm a pretty slow writer, so it took, you know, I think that it took me about 
four months to write the script. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't write fast. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, you know, I, I know people who say that they can write scripts in like a week. That's, that's, I've just never been my ability. And so, um, particularly things that aren't outlined or anything. So just from sort of like this beginning of the writing process to the end was about four months and then we got it, we got it done. So, so then that was probably May of 2021. And then we took it out, um, to producers and we sold it in, um, July of 2021. And then it was, then it Did was you have to give it back to him first. So yeah, that was, yeah, that was, he, he asked before he officially gave us the rights <laughs> this road, to send to producers. He said, he said, I want to read the script. And so that, that was oh, the very, that was, yeah, exactly, man. That was like, <laughs> that was the, that's the one thing with saying you can have the rights for free until you're done with the script. Right. Is like, is like, cause now all of a sudden he, he doesn't have to give you written the script and he doesn't, he can say like, actually, I hate this. No. And so it was a very, very nerve wracking 48 hours while I waited for him to read the script, but he read the script, mm-hmm. he gave us the approval and then, and then we were kind of off to, then we sort of paid him and then we were off to the races with the rest. Yeah, of I see the he team. got like producer credit and stuff, which I respect. I think that's great. You know? Yeah, man. It, I mean, look, it's, this movie doesn't exist without him. You know what I mean? This And so, and so I, I feel like everybody should get their due and I'm happy that he got his due. First of all, since become a really good friend and a, and a, and a mentor of mine. Now he's so, like, what, what other one do you want to do? Yeah, Corey? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's actually talking about us writing something together, which he, which I'm okay. very excited about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be dope. That'd be dope. Let me ask you, um, how long was the shoot? 26 days. Wow. Okay. Very sure. We were supposed to have 27, but we ended up with 26. So it was... Uh, very run and gun. We didn't have a lot of time on our hands. And you ended up doing it in, was it Boston or somewhere? What was it? Boston, yeah. We did some Boston. We did some LA rather, but mostly Boston. Okay, okay. So the college stuff, the college stuff, in, and obviously the last, the final shot of the of mm-hmm. the movie is 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 uh, in LA. Right. Uh, but uh, the rest of it was in Boston. Right. Because um, I'm, I'm one of those people, you know, as a producer, I'm always looking at, production value and looking at like, oh, I could tell this movie was probably was this much money. I could just see it, yeah. <laughs> you know, it just, Absolutely. you know, it's just yeah. one of those things. And so um, like when you guys went to the beach and as soon as you guys got there and stayed there for a while, I was going, okay, this budget went up quite a bit all of a sudden for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, wait a minute. They're on the beach on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I thought they were like adjacent, like down the yeah, street. No. <laughs> I was like, okay, Cord, I see you on your line. Y'all we know did, we, yeah, we you know did a lot of beach scouting. We found like we had some great location scouts. We had some great production designers. We had a great cinematographer. We had people who really, really helped us punch above our weight class visually and sort of with the aesthetics of the film who really made it look more expensive than it was. And one of, you know, one of the producers is actually from that town from, it's called Situate, Massachusetts. It's about sort of, it's uh, Southeast of of Boston, about 40 minutes. And uh, he grew up in Situate. Actually one the house that we used for the family beach house for the family cottage was um, his old high school art teacher's house we, we were we were location scouting and she comes out and she goes is that little ben leclerc and it was like <laughs> yeah i'm producing now and we, and we ended up using her house for that and we fortunately got the one across the street for for Coraline's house as well let me before i let you go because they're, they're telling me we got to wrap up um here's i have just two quick things for you one yes sir i love the relationship between the older couple and i knew and Lorraine, yeah I knew it was coming. I told my husband this, which I thought was funny. I said, we were watching it, uh, and I said, and he turned, he was, he was watching her. She went, he went, mm, mm, mm. And I went, that is a black man. That is a black man who knows what yeah. he's Okay? I grew up in the 70s in the Bay Area. Exactly. All the Black Panthers and all that. They would have saw a girl went, mm, mm, mm. And I was like, yes, Cord, yes, keep that in the <laughs> exactly. You know I, mean? exactly. So I just appreciated that relationship also, not to give it Thank anything, you. But because you. it's so real, they look like real people, you know. And yes, to me, sir. I appreciated that. Thank the, you. The, 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 the other thing was, as a gay man, I, appre- I actually appreciated what you did with, um, with your boy's character. I, with Clip, I thought that was pretty amazing. The type, you didn't dwell in his gayness, you mm. know. And, no. and I think 
I forget what the line was, but I remember me and my husband broke out in tears when he was having that final moment with his brother, with um, with um, Monk, with with Monk. My apologies. Yeah, no worries. And, and he was telling him about how Dad died not knowing who he really truly was. Yeah. And his line back to Monk about why it was important for him to know. I yeah. was just oh, oh like, man, it was just beautiful. Thank you, thank yeah. you. That is that that is. So a lot of that is taken directly from my real life. So so the so I'm not gay, but my mother died eight years ago. And one of my biggest regrets in my life is that there was a lot of myself that I hid from my mother, either because I thought she'd be disappointed in me or I thought that um, that that it was embarrassing or shameful for me to admit these things. Uh, and I really, really regret that now because uh, because so so that is that is that is something that I think to myself is that she never knew who I fully was and she never will. And that that really makes me sad. I think that one of the main themes of this movie is that is freedom and what a lack of freedom does to people. And when people when people feel not free to be themselves, the crazy thing is that they'll do to act out because they don't feel free, you know, and, and sort of like what what that what that what that does to a, a person's psyche and what that does to their behavior. And so I think that for me, the two characters who I think resemble me the most, there's a little bit of me and everybody, but it's Cliff and Monk. And I think that it's these guys who have, you know, which is why I think that, again, not to give too much away, but I think the real love story in the film is between Cliff and Monk. And it's these guys Ooh. who, for different reasons, have built up these facades in front of themselves. And they've been hiding they hide themselves from the world and they don't tell everybody exactly who they are and exactly what they've been feeling. And so I think in some ways, one of the things that frustrates Monk about Cliff is that he's seeing a guy who's finally becoming who he wants to be and sort of like, yeah, it's a bumpy road. And, you know, he's he's going through a midlife crisis like that's what Cliff is doing. It's like the same way that we've seen a million guys divorce their wives and start dating younger people and get their ear pierced and buy a, a convertible BMW or whatever. Like, he came like, out late. Is that what it is? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. I, so it's like, so, I know so a lot of dudes like him. Yeah. 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 So he's just, yeah. so he's just come out. He's just, right. he's getting, he's in the middle of his divorce. He's in the middle of all this and he's trying to figure out who he wants to be and like actually live in his truth. And I think that that's one of the things that upsets Monk about Cliff. It's like, yeah, Cliff is kind of a pain in the ass sometimes, but what, what he also resents is that Cliff is finally becoming who he wants to be. And he's living out in the open and he's saying like, this is who I am. And so that, that moment that they're having when he's saying like, man, I see what you're doing. Game recognized game here. And I see that you're living, you're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with the people around you. And like that really is eventually going to break you. That's going to hurt you the way that it hurt our father. You know, I think that that to me is, is, uh, was one of the most important parts of the movie. And it's it's one of the things that's really, really a part of, you know, I, I don't, I, if I had made this movie five years ago, I would not have, it would have been a very different movie. And I, I would not have made it as, as well matured. as- You matured yourself. So, yeah. Man, fi five years ago, I was Monk. Five years ago, I was Monk and Cliff. I was really, I was not honest with anybody. I was not honest with myself. I was really- 2018 was this crazy year where I had a lot of career success and I was writing on when I was writing on Watchmen. It was writing, was writing Succession. I was writing on The Good Place. I was having all this career success and I was also feeling at the same time profoundly depressed. And it was like, how am I, how are all these good things going on in my life? And yet I feel miserable all the time. And I finally, finally started going to therapy, finally started sort of like getting serious about, about being honest with people and being honest with myself and, and trying to get past my, my own problems. And it changed my life the way that it's sort of like you can see it change Cliff's life in the in the movie as well. And and, you know, eventually, hopefully Monk's life. So there's a lot of me in there. And those two characters in particular are, are, are very, very close to my heart. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cord, man. So good thank you, man. It's so great talking to you, too. Yeah, I hope we I want to ride. Vespa. I want to ride Vespas one day. Let's get I'm it. Still, I'm still desperate. I have I'm six still... of them in my garage. So. Are you serious? You have oh, six? Yeah. You see one of them right there behind me. Like, that's me. <laughs> so, yeah, man, well, I, I appreciate one, you, man. buddy. Hey, quick that's question. Uh, can, yes, people, can people follow you? Where are you at? Are you on Instagram, Twitter? I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter less these days. I had my I had I had my my friend lock me out of my Twitter account because I <laughs> because I don't have the 
I do not have the skin. I, my, my skin's too thin to see what people are saying about me in the movie so on Twitter right now. So I'll yeah. probably get back on there one day. But you can follow me there. I'm on Cord Jefferson, and then I'm on Instagram. I check Instagram a lot more. I'm a Cord Jefferson on there as well. So Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Well, thank you. Follow us um, at WJ West everywhere. You, could, you can find us out there. I'm at Hilliard Guest. Thank you again to Greg and the whole team over here and your team who helped us put this together. Thank you, no, Michelle. Thank you, man. And thank now, you to everybody. Thanks really again, Cord. All thanks the best on this me. movie, man. Go see this movie and shout out to Issa again. So love y'all. Shout out to Issa and shout out to the WGA. I love you guys. Thank you so much. We'll talk see soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Third and Fairfax. You can listen and subscribe to Third and Fairfax on Spotify, Apple, and Libsyn. And now watch us on the Writers Guild of America West YouTube channel. Also check out writtenby.com, the Guild's newly relaunched online publication. See you next time. And a special thank you to D'Angelo, our UPS driver. We appreciate you. Her front door. She works at the plant like everybody else. So... Uh, the song Hands came about uh, at a time I was working in, uh, living in Tupelo, Mississippi. This was be the late 70s, probably 79. Uh, and I'm organizing in sort of the north from Jackson up to Memphis, that northern part of the state. And so there's a town south of Tupelo, Houston, Mississippi, very small town in Chickasaw County, very rural, had a furniture plant. And a lot of people farmed, or one member of the family farmed and the other worked in the plant kind of thing. So I went down there uh, to organize that plant. And so for some background, the first thing I did, there were two local unions in Chickasaw County, a paper workers local and a glass and ceramic workers local. So of course, I'm gonna go meet with the presidents of those two locals before I do anything else. Uh, so I met with the head of the paper workers and learned that he didn't know the president of the glass and ceramic workers. This kind of blew my mind and, I, and he wasn't telling me why. I later learned that the head of the glass and ceramic workers local was also the head of the Ku Klux Klan. And the paper worker guy was progressive. So then I, that made sense. Um, it was also in his house, and this relates to one of the lines in the song, Hands. So when you're an organizer, you go into somebody's house, you're tuning all your five basic senses into everything. What's hanging on the wall? What smell is coming from the kitchen? You know, all this stuff. So I'm sitting there talking with uh, the guy who was president of the local, and uh, you know his wife was there. She wasn't saying anything. Talked for like 45 minutes. And I said, well, I see a hymnal there on your piano. I'm Catholic and that looks like a Catholic hymnal. And she then spoke up. She said, I knew there was a third strike against you. You're Yankee, you're Union, and you're Catholic. And they will hang you in Chickasaw County for that. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, you know, 20, five years old, 24 years old, and I'm like, holy shit, what, what, what's going on here? Uh, so that's just a little backdrop. It was it was like going back in time. Uh, and of course, there's no GPS. So finding these people who live out in rural areas was really hard. You gotta go do house calls. Well, I found uh, Pam. I knew Pam had worked in the plant, and I, I went, went to house call her, and her husband, Roy, answered the door. And I said, well, I'm here to talk to Pam about a union at the plant. And he turns and points to a big gun rack that was right by the front door. He said, if you're here to talk about the union, that's what you're gonna meet. And he points to his guns. Now, leaning up against the gun rack was a guitar. And so I shifted the conversation immediately to the guitar. And I said, oh, I play. In fact, I got my guitar in the in the car. And that got me an invitation in. That got me into his 
his uh, house where I talked with Pam and then we played music together, the three of us, and became really good friends. So this song is really about Pam and Roy and meeting them. And I, I took a, a line from a Stuart Acuff poem called Hands. It really didn't lend itself to a song, but it did have the line, she sat down and looked at her hands. Sore and thick from a hard day at work. Now that is, first of all, when you're talking to somebody about something as uncomfortable as maybe losing their job, they do kind of sit and look at their hands. Sore and thick, you have to have worked to understand that your hands do get sore and thick. So I built a song around that hook in Stewart's poem. Um, and it, it really is about sort of asking if I could come in and sit down and, you know, she's looking at her hands, she's worried. Uh, but there's a little more to it. Um, and that is the way I recorded it uh, was, you know, really special to me. Uh, I've always believed, you know, what Carlos Santana always said, the tone to a musician is first and foremost. And I think that's true in life as well. You know, you've heard the saying that people may not remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. That's tone. And so I've always applied that in all of my work and in my music. And so this song opens with a big, full, lush guitar chord played through a Frantone Vibutron tremolo. I walked up to her front door. Now only guitar heads would appreciate that, but it sounds like a Hammond B3 organ. It's got that modulation to it. And that chord just hangs at the beginning. And then we go into the song. It's also a song that has uh, instruments that actually talk to one another. And, you know, there are plenty of artists that do that, but there are more that don't. More typical, you have a verse, then a solo, then a verse or a chorus, then another solo. But in this one, um, I play a melodic solo on the acoustic guitar and Tom Espinola's playing mandolin and he's dancing all around that solo, which to me, I mean, that just, uh, that draws me in. That raised her family. Listening with every part of me. Talking about how dignity. Can be found in a fight. I think the, the key to this song is what was happening in Mississippi at that time, my union organizing, and the idea of, and this is in the chorus, the chorus starts with the line, listening with every part of me. That's what an organizer does. And that's all, it's more than listening. Like I said, it's all of the basic senses as all pathways to the soul. But listening with every part of me, talking about how dignity can be found in a fight, standing for what you know is right. That's the chorus, that's kind of the, the key to the song, the, the verses set that up. Uh, and that's essentially the, you know, why and how I wrote Hands. Step down off 
Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1805. That was the day that abolitionist and women's rights advocate Angelina Grimke was born. Her parents were slaveholders and among the wealthiest in Charleston, South Carolina. As a young woman, she denounced slavery and together with her sister Sarah, moved north to Philadelphia to join the Quakers. There she became a teacher and grew frustrated with how the Quakers approached abolitionism. She quickly gravitated towards radical abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and became active in the Philadelphia female anti-slavery society. She became prominent in abolitionist circles in 1835 after Garrison published her letter condemning pro-slavery riots in Boston. The next year, she published an open letter to Southern women demanding they condemn the institution of slavery. Angelina and Sarah embarked on abolitionist speaking tours and the organizing of women's anti-slavery societies. Having grown up in the South, the Grimke sisters held a special authority among Northern abolitionists. They could testify to the severity and inhumanity of the slave system. They did so in the book American Slavery As It Is, written together with Angelina's husband, abolitionist Theodore Well. Controversy intensified against Angelina and her sister as their popularity grew. Religious leaders and abolitionists alike bristled at the idea of women engaging in public speaking and political work. Undeterred, the sisters defended their right to be on equal footing with men in the abolitionist movement. Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister Catherine, a leading educator, was among those who decried women's public activism. Angelina responded that all humans are moral beings worthy of human rights regardless of gender. Her response served as an early contribution to the women's rights movement of the 19th century. So that's your hit of Power Hour for the day in this week's edition of the Labor Heritage Power Hour. If you got suggestions for guests or topics for future shows, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Info at laborheritage.org. That's info at laborheritage.org. The Labor Heritage Power Hour, a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Find out more about us, laborradionetwork.org. Hey, before we go, just a reminder, we're wrapping up our winter pledge drive this week. And at least I was thinking that, you know, the kind of voices that that we put on the show every week, like today with Cord Jefferson, you know, our, our good friend Joe Uline, and all the other shows across the station, to make it such a, a valuable resource for the community. Uh, but that's only possible because of the support of uh, of our listeners, right? Absolutely correct, as it should be. Because we don't have to depend on corporate power and corporate dollars to bring you the, the, the truth and the bread and the roses, the culture and the music and the songs and the videos and the films. That's what this is about. And you make that happen. And you make that happening by going to your phone and uh, picking it up and giving us a call right now. 
1-800-222-9739 or go online wpfwfm.org uh you can give in cash app dollar sign wpfw or just uh just give us a call 800-222-9739 it's that easy and uh really makes a difference folks any last words at least before we wrap up for the week we bring you the best and we hope you enjoy it and appreciate your support Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times right here on the Labor Heritage Power Hour. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Great to have you back, Elise. Thanks, Chris. Great to be back. And uh, why don't you give the our signature outro line? Oh, thanks so much for listening to the Labor Heritage Power Hour, the art and soul of the American labor movement. We'll see you next week, everybody. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Here are some headlines. Israeli airstrikes killed at least 48 people in Gaza overnight, including at least seven in the southern city of Rafah, after homes and a mosque were destroyed. Health officials said half of the people killed were women and children. Israeli War Cabinet Minister Benny Gantz said late yesterday that ceasefire negotiations were continuing, but that Israel would follow through with a planned ground invasion of Rafah during the holy month of Ramadan, unless Hamas agreed to release remaining hostages. The foreign ministers of 26 European countries today called for a pause in fighting and urged Israel not to take actions in Rafah, which would worsen what they call an already catastrophic humanitarian situation. In related news, the head of the World Health Organization yesterday warned that Gaza has become a death zone. Speaking at a press briefing in Geneva, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, Director General of the WHO, said that, quote, much of the territory has been destroyed, more than 29,000 people are dead, many more are missing, presumed dead, and many, many more are injured, close quote. He noted that severe malnutrition has shot up dramatically across Gaza since the war began, from under 1% of the population to over 15% in some areas stating that those numbers will rise the longer the war goes on, Tedros called for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and demanded unhindered access for international aid. In news out of the UK, a two-day hearing at London's High Court concluded yesterday over whether to grant WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange a fresh appeal against his extradition to the United States to face espionage charges. The judges overseeing the case said it would take time to come to a verdict and a ruling is not expected until March at the earliest. Assange could face a 175-year prison sentence for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. His lawyers have argued the case is politically motivated to target Assange for exposing what they call state-level crimes. If he loses this appeal, Assange's only remaining option would be at the European Court of Human Rights, but his supporters fear he could be flown to the U.S. before that happens, because the British government has already signed an extradition order. And in domestic news, former President Trump's attorneys requested a 30-day extension yesterday on the time limit to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in the civil fraud case brought against him by the state. The lawyers made the request in a letter addressed to Judge Arthur Engeron, who last week fined the former president $355 million plus interest the ruling also bans Trump from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for three years. Trump would have one month to come up with the funds 
to pay the verdict after it is enforced, yesterday's request would delay the enforcement by 30 days. Earlier this week, in an interview with ABC News, New York Attorney General Letitia James said she's ready to seize Trump's buildings and other assets if he can't pay the penalty. Trump has vowed to appeal the ruling. And in weather today, in New York City, it is 44 degrees, partly sunny, with rain likely later today. In Washington, D.C., 48 degrees and 